please take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. If you were in adult Sunday school class this morning, you saw that most of our classes were starting a study in Exodus. So uh, you, I think you started in Exodus chapter 3 this morning, so I thought it'd be a good idea. Well, let's pick up with uh, Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up uh, to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be spending the, the next several months in, in most of our adult Sunday school classes going through uh, this book and talking about the Exodus. So uh, it's appropriate for us this morning to go through uh, and look at the beginning uh, of Exodus. As we, as we read through the book of Exodus, and as I know from you having read through this book in the past, you know what it's about, and you know what happens, uh, and you know the stories of Exodus. And you know that Exodus is, is really uh, a lot of stories uh, strung together. We've got, we've got the story of Moses and his birth, and we've got the story of, uh, of the people being enslaved uh, in Egypt, and we've got uh, the story of the parting of the Red Sea, and all these different stories uh, that you've heard. And really, most of the book of Exodus uh, is a story. It's not like uh, a lot of the things in the New Testament where you get to the letters of Paul, and Paul says, rejoice always. He says, real clearly, you need to do this. Uh, or you get to the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus says, love one another. Or Jesus says that uh, you're to do this, or you're to not do that. But when we read the book of Exodus right here, until we get to the giving of the law, for the most part, it's just a story. Moses is giving us a story of, of the people of Israel, and their enslavement, and what happens uh, to them. So he wasn't really giving us these commands. Here's what you're supposed to do. And so if you look at Exodus 1 and Exodus 2 and Exodus 3, you're not going to see a whole lot of, you know, Brian, go do this. Amanda, go do this. You see a lot of what's just story. And it's really the whole point of what Moses is doing here. Moses is filling us in uh, on the story of the people of Israel, the story of how they were enslaved, how God released them from slavery in, in Egypt. And, and it's, it's not so much just about the story, but it's about the one who stands behind the story. When Moses is writing the book of Exodus, he's writing and filling us in with these great details and this grand narrative of what is happening, and we know these amazing stories. But the point of reading the book of Exodus isn't so that we'll know these stories, but so we'll know the God who stands behind those stories. You see, is when we're reading this book, we're getting a glimpse just a glimpse of a bigger story, which God is working out his purpose. So when we read Exodus 1 and Exodus 2 here in just a few minutes, we're getting just a glimpse, a small fraction of a bigger story of what God is doing. From Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, we see one big overarching story in which God is working to redeem a people for himself for his glory. And, and so when we read these stories of the Bible that we've known so well from Sunday school when we were kids, Daniel in the lion's den, Moses, Noah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, when we read all these different stories of these men and of these women of the Bible, we're not just reading these random stories about these great men and women who did these great things, but we're getting a glimpse at each one of those of how God is working out his purpose for his people by redeeming a people for himself, for his own glory. And so when we pick up 
and we start reading in Exodus chapter 1, we start reading in Exodus chapter 2, we're getting right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of God's plan for saving a people for himself, for his own, for his own glory. And what, what I want us to see this morning, as we read these couple chapters, what I want us to see is that God is always faithful to his purposes and his promises to his people. We're reading this morning about God's purpose for Israel, for what he's doing in their lives, rescuing them out of slavery. And what I want us to understand is God is always faithful to his promises and his purpose for his people. Now, this is, this is pretty much a no-brainer for us. I guarantee that if I asked for a, for a raising of hands, how many people believe that God is, God is faithful to his promises? Every single person in here is going to raise their hands because you know that. You know that God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God is going to carry out his purposes for his people. But my point this morning isn't for us just to have head knowledge. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to go beyond head knowledge to heart knowledge so that our hearts, our very souls wrap around this truth that God is faithful, that God is faithful to his promises and his purposes. So that in the very depth of our being, we become unshakable, unswerving, unmoving on the truth that God is always faithful, always faithful to his promise, his purpose for his people. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, as we see that God is faithful in his purposes, God is faithful in the midst of suffering, God is faithful in every detail. Exodus chapter 1, picking up verse 1. Listen to what God's word says. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. You know, when, when we start off reading Exodus, we're probably not getting too excited. You know, we start off with just reading a, a group of names. And typically, when we come across just a group of names, uh, reading through them, our eyes glaze over. You know, you start just kind of see, see this list of names and you kind of skip on to the next part. You know, this seems to be a strange way that that Moses starts the book of Exodus. You know, I'm the kind of guy who, who likes to read a lot. I have probably beside my bed 15 books at any time. And it's books that range from, from poetry to classical literature. I've got theology there. I've got a Bible there. I've got, you know, a spy thriller there. And, and all these books, they start out kind of with a bang. You know, they, they start out with some kind of something memorable, something that draws you in. You know, if you're reading the newest spy thriller, there's an explosion. Guns are going off. Someone's dying. There's a murder. You know, something's there that you just want, what's going to happen next? Or if you're reading some kind of classic literature, you've got this, this great line that, that is so memorable to you. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Some line of poetry that just draws you into it. Something that, that pulls you in right when you start reading it. When we read this, we, just, we start off with just a list of names. It's almost like 
Moses is picking up right in the middle of the story. And that's really what Moses is doing here. Moses is picking up in the middle of a story. It's not like Moses is starting a, a whole new thing for us here. The whole point of what he's doing is to show us that this is the ongoing, continuing story of what God is doing. Look, look there at verse 1. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel. The exact same words are used back just a few chapters before in Genesis. Flip back, Genesis chapter 46. Flip back with me. You can do it real quick. Genesis 46, verse 8. Listen to what it says there. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel. All right, hold your place there. Flip back over to Exodus 1. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Get the same picture there? What Moses is doing there is he's cluing us in and saying, hey, what I'm doing here is I'm continuing the story. I'm wanting you to see that what was started back in Genesis, how God was working out his purpose for his people, God is continuing that right here, right now. So you're seeing how God is working out his purpose for his people right here as he does this. And as we see this list of names here, what we're supposed to see is the continuation of how God is working out his purpose. Now look there in in verse 7 of chapter 1. It says that sons of Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, and multiplied. Now I I want you to think back to the creation. Think back to Genesis chapter 1 if you can. Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve. And then he immediately gives them a command, tells them to do something. God tells them to be fruitful and what? Multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Now look at verse 7. What does it say has happened to the people of Israel? It says they have been fruitful and they multiplied. What Moses is doing here is he's saying, look, look what God has done. God has taken these people, and God has fulfilled his promise. God had a purpose for his people. They're to spread out. They're to be fruitful. They're to be multiplying. And exactly what he wanted them to do is what's happened here in verse 7. It's like Moses is screaming out to us, God is faithful. God is faithful. God has done what he intended to do through his people. Even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of God's people, God is 100% faithful to his purposes, his promises for his people. Adam and Eve fell in the garden. People became wicked, so God sends the flood. People are supposed to spread out and multiply. They instead congregate in cities, and God confuses their language at Babel, so they'll finally spread out and multiply. In the midst of it all, God is faithful to his purpose, to his promise for his people. Yet, Through it all, God has his one purpose for redeeming a people for himself, for his own glory. You remember that God's purpose was redeeming a people for himself through one man, Abraham, right? God made a promise to Abraham, said he's going to do two things through him. Number one, he was going to increase his descendants, give him descendants that are more numerous than the the stars in the sky. Second, he was going to give him land, this this land flowing with milk and honey that they were going to go to and that they were going to dwell in. It's going to be their land, gift from him. Look at one, Exodus 1-7 again. Look at what it says there. They're fruitful. They've multiplied. God has done 
what he said he was going to do. The promise that he made to Abraham, here it is. They've been fruitful. They multiplied. God is working out his purpose, his promise for him. Moses, again, shouting out to us, God is faithful. We're supposed to read this and see, look how faithful God is to all that he has, all that he has desired to do. And it's not, like, it's not like that we have this family here that we would look at and say, man, they did this all by themselves. Because how many people does it say went down there? Seventy. Seventy people went down. And we're not talking about the, the greatest, most upstanding people in this family. This is a family line that's filled with liars and cheaters and murderers, people who threw their brother down into a well. This isn't a family that we would expect to, to rise up and grow to be numerous and prosperous and actually become this great nation. What Moses is doing is pointing us, to us and saying, look, this isn't this family that has done this. They don't have anything of themselves, nothing of themselves to make themselves great. This is entirely a work of God bringing about his purpose for his people. That's the point. That God is faithful to his purpose, to his promise. Without fail, always. And this is, this is the truth that I want me and you to grasp. This is the truth that I want us to hold on to, unshakable in the core of our being, so that we stand unmoving, unswerving on the truth that God is always 100% faithful to his purpose and his promise for his people. And I ask do we stand that way? Are you unmoving in your certainty of God's faithfulness? Do you stand unshakable, unswerving in that? And the reason I ask that is because often the path that God has laid for his people, the purpose he has, leads through suffering. Often the path that God has laid out for his people is through suffering. And what we're going to see in this text is that God is faithful to his promises, but he's also faithful to his promises, to his purposes, in the midst of the suffering of his people. Look at, look at verse 8. We're going we're to read through a few more verses here. Verse 8 through 14. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. They built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. All right, what we've got is the people of Israel have been in Egypt for about 400 years or so. 
So they're there in Egypt. During this time, they've multiplied. They've grown greatly. There's tons of them. And so finally, they've grown to the point so much that the Pharaoh looks out at them and says, this people has gotten so large, there's so many of them, that if we had a foreign army come invade and attack us, I'm afraid that they would join with that foreign army, and they're so big now, they could turn the tide of battle, and they could rise up against us. So we've got to do something to stand against this people and hold them down so they can't ever rise up against us. So Pharaoh's making these plans to do that. In order to do that, what he does is he says, well, I'm going to set taskmasters over them. I'm going to make them my slaves so that they are ruled under me, and I oppress them, and they're beaten down, they're downtrodden so much that I break their spirits so they'll never rise up against me. And so that's what he does. Pharaoh sets up these taskmasters and enslaves the people of Israel. Now, we, we know a little bit from history about what it meant to be a slave uh, in Egypt. Uh, we've got different archaeological descriptions of that and historical descriptions, and, and we find out that the Egyptians were basically merciless. If you were made into their slave, you became the property of Pharaoh. You had his stamp put on you, you were divided out into different groups, you were put into work, and you were made as slave laborers to build the huge cities that he was building. And if you were enslaved by Pharaoh, then you could be treated any way that he wanted to treat you. And they were merciless. We've got this one description of a taskmaster looking out over his slave. It says, the taskmaster goes out and he looks at the harvest. The attendants are behind him with staffs and Nubians with clubs. One says to him, give grain. And the slave answers, there is none. And so the slave is beaten savagely. He's bound, he's thrown in the well. He's submerged head down. His wife is bound in his presence. His children are in fetters. All this right in front of the slave's eyes. Because what, Mo, what Pharaoh is trying to do is to beat them down to the point that they are totally willing to do anything that he wants and they will never rise up against him. This is the kind of cruelty they're experiencing. But look at verse 12. Pharaoh's purpose is to fight against them, hold, in that, hold them down. But instead, it says the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out. So the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. Now, how can it be that this people who are beaten down, who are enslaved, who are under taskmasters, who are beaten as they are slaves, how can it be that they continue to multiply and grow so greatly that all the rest of the Egyptians stand in fear of them? It's not in the ability of the Israelites. It's not in their strength or what they are doing, but in the God who stands behind them and the God who is working out his purpose in their lives. You see, when Pharaoh was working to oppress the Israelites, when Pharaoh was setting taskmasters over them, he wasn't standing and fighting against the people of Israel. He was standing and fighting against the God of Israel. And you cannot stand and you cannot oppress and you cannot fight against the God of Israel. Arthur W. Pink says, Better might a worm withstand the tread of an elephant than the puny creature resist the Almighty. Pharaoh cannot win because he is fighting against the enemy who stands over the entire world. Pharaoh does not realize this. So Pharaoh goes to plan B. Plan A, let's throw them in shackles, let's enslave them. Plan B, let's get rid of their boys. Listen to verse 15. We'll go through uh, verse 21 here. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, 
If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So Pharaoh, he goes to the midwives, he says, All right, look, when, when you see a baby boy be born, you're to put him to death. But the midwives fear God, so they do not put the baby boys to death. So again, Pharaoh fighting against God says, we're going to kill the baby boys. Baby boys will grow up one day. They'll become men who can fight in an army. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wipe them out so they don't have any men who can rise up in an army. But again, verse 20, the people multiplied and they become very mighty. Not because of the abilities of the people, not because these midwives are so great, but because Pharaoh is fighting against the God of Israel. He cannot win. Because God is standing over all, and he's standing faithful to his purpose, to his promise to multiply his people and to eventually take them out of slavery in Egypt. So again, Pharaoh, plan A, B's. Plan, Plan A fails, plan B fails, so let's move on to plan C. Listen to verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. Every daughter, you are to keep alive. Hasn't worked going through the midwives, so he sends out a command to everybody. This isn't just for the people of Israel. This is a command that goes out to every single Egyptian, every single Israelite, everybody who is living there in Egypt. If you see a baby Hebrew boy, cast him into the Nile. As an Egyptian, it is your duty to throw them into the Nile so that they will drown. And so now it's not just Pharaoh against the people of Israel. And it's not just Pharaoh and the taskmasters against the people of Israel. It's not just the, the law, but now it's the entire land against the people of Israel. And there's no doubt that the people of Israel are suffering. They're beaten. They're seeing their family chained. They're broken. I'm sure they're weeping. They're losing their children. Parents are seeing their boys thrown into the Nile and killed. And we have to look at this and we have to wonder, why? Why did all this happen? God has a purpose for his people. Why did his people suffer so greatly? And we have to ask, could God have prevented this? Could God have stopped all the suffering? Of course. God is God. God can do anything. God could have stopped their suffering at any moment. But what we have to understand is this key truth, and I want you to hear this very clearly. Sometimes, and perhaps even often, the path of God's purpose for his people 
leads through suffering. I want you to hear that again. Sometimes, and perhaps even often, the path of God's purpose for his people leads through suffering. You see, God, I I want you to think about it this way. God's purpose for his people of Israel was to take them to a different land, right? God's purpose was to take them to what would be their own land, their own country. But how easy would it have been for that to happen if the people of Israel were living comfortably and safely and everything was going well for them in the land of Egypt? I want you to imagine Moses going up to the people. They're living their comfortable lives. They have uh, wonderful positions of power. They are being well-fed. They have everything they could ever need. They're upstanding members of society. People love them. Their, their kids are prospering. They're, everything is going well. And I want you to imagine Moses goes up to the people and says, all right, everything that you have here, everything that you love here, the way you're accepted and all that life is good for you here, I want you to leave. We need to leave, and we need to go to this other place. And by the way, when we go to this other place, you're going to have to go to a place you don't know, and it's going to be dangerous, and there are enemies there, and we're going to have to fight many battles, and probably some of you are going to die along the way. How well would that go over? No one's going with him. But now, let's look at it the way God has orchestrated it. People are suffering. The people are being beaten, people are losing their lives, they are oppressed, the Pharaoh is standing against them. God is working in them to prepare them to go, to take them to the land that he has promised, a land that is better than what they have there in Egypt. You see, the Israelites in that 400 years that they were in Egypt could have easily just been absorbed into the culture. They could look like the Egyptians, they could eat like the Egyptians, they could have the lives of the Egyptians, they could worship the pagan gods of the Egyptians. But instead, what God does is God brings suffering into their lives in order to separate them out from the rest of the people of Egypt to make them a holy people for himself so they will be different than the people of Egypt and so they will continue worshiping him and have their eyes set on him, not upon the false gods of the people of Egypt. God is preparing them for the purpose that he has for them. And you see, sometimes God's purpose for his people is to lead them through a path of suffering in order that his purposes can be accomplished. And it's always been that way. God has grown his church through suffering. Think about Stephen. Stephen is martyred in the book of Acts. What happens to the church after that? They're scattered, they spread, and the church expands, the gospel goes forth. In Acts chapter 12, Herod kills James. Very next thing we hear, the word of the Lord continue to grow and be multiplied. God grows his church through the suffering of his people. And we go through pain and we go through heartache and we go through misery and we go through suffering and whatever else might come in this life. Those things are to drive us to the one who is unfailing in his love who never fails in his purpose, who never swerves from his plan for his people, whose love never grows cold, who uphold, whose love never grows cold, who upholds us no matter what may happen. Spurgeon said, do you not think that persecution and opposition and any other suffering are permitted for our good, as in Israel's case, to make us feel that this is not our rest, 
and to cause us to long for the better land. Is it not the case that God takes the suffering that you and I experience to take us and break our love of this world and set our affections more and more upon him and the world to come? And that's what he's doing in the life of Israel. And so often, God's path for his people is a path that leads through suffering. And for us, when we look back on the history of Israel right here, it's easy for us. It's easy for us because we know what's getting ready to come. We can look at the suffering that they are going through, and we can read through that in one chapter, and we can know that just a few chapters down the road, what God is going to do is God is going to rescue them through mighty acts, and God is going to lead them through uh, the parting of the waters, and God is eventually going to take them to their own land. So it's easy for us when we see and we hear and we know what the end is going to be. But what's it like for us when we can't see the end? But instead, we're in the middle of the story rather than outside the story. And we're the ones right there in the midst of suffering, and our heart aches, and our heart breaks, and our emotions are at our, at our end, and we don't know what's going to happen next. One pastor put it this way, part of God's providence for his people is to trust in him when the lights are out. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that my purpose this morning is for you and me to have an unshakable, unmoving trust in the faithfulness of God. And I want us to have our hearts and our souls wrapped around this truth so much that we are not moved in our trust in God because the truth is you and I will suffer. I guarantee it. Scripture guarantees it. Whether you are hurting now or later, it will come. And the question, when that comes, how will you respond? Will it be with an unmoving, unshakable trust and the God who holds all things in his hands and is working out his good purpose for your life and who is working out his promise for your life? And will it be like Job where he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? This is what the faithfulness of God drives us to, this unshakable, unmoving trust in him no matter what may come because you and I will suffer. We will hurt. We will ache. Our Our emotions will fail us. Will we be that unshakable? We know that God is faithful in his promises. We know that God is faithful in the midst of suffering. And we know that God is faithful in the details. Listen to what happens next. Let's pick up chapter 2, verse 1. This is a passage you know very well. Birth of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. 
When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. God has a plan to rescue his people out of the suffering that they're going through. And that plan revolves around this baby boy right here. God's plan is to use Moses as the leader of the people of Israel in order to take them out of the, uh, out of the slavery that they're experiencing. He's going to be the one who's going to lead them. He's going to be the one who God uses. He's going to be kind of the spokesperson uh, for God. And in the midst of Israel's history, there's no one like Moses. He's held up higher than any other uh, in Israel's history. Yet when Moses was born, he's born in perhaps the most dangerous time for a boy to be born in all of Israel's history. By law, when he's born, he's supposed to be cast into the Nile. If an Egyptian walks by and sees him, that Egyptian is supposed to grab him, toss him into the Nile, no matter what his parents are saying. It's a dangerous time for him to be born. You see, God didn't just have a plan for that man, Moses, 80 years down the road. God had a plan and a purpose for that baby boy, Moses, when he was born. You see, God had a purpose and a plan for his people. And if you have a purpose and a plan for an end, you cannot accomplish those, that end unless you have a plan for the in-between times. You can't accomplish the end without having a plan for the beginning and the middle and all throughout it. And so what we're seeing here is that God is providentially working. He's sovereignly in control of every single detail of Moses' life because he is bringing about his good, perfect purpose, fulfilling his promises to his people. And what we're going to see as we look at this is God is faithful in every single aspect, every single detail of every single thing that happens in history. He stands as the God over all of it, holding it all in his hand from the beginning to the end, sovereign over it all, every single detail. So we have this man and woman who have a baby boy. They've already got a couple kids. They have a baby boy. And as any parents would, they look at that baby boy with love. And their hearts fall in love with this boy. And so they, they obviously cannot follow the commands of Pharaoh, so they hide him. And, he, and he's a newborn. He, he cries a little, but they're able to hold him and rock him and feed him and, and, and keep him quiet for a while. But after a few months, it gets to the point that, he, that his crying gets louder and he's, he's bigger and he, he can make more noise. He doesn't sleep as much, and, and so there's nothing that they can do anymore to hide him. And so Moses' mother takes him and in love places him in this basket that, she, that she's lined and made it, made it safe for him and puts, puts a cover on it and pushes it down, and it, it floats away. And so we have Moses floating down the river, his sister's kind of watching alongside to see what happens. And then it stops in the reeds, and a young woman comes walking down. And this woman is probably almost the worst person who could possibly be there at the time because it's Pharaoh's daughter. 
Pharaoh's daughter comes down and she looks at this basket that's there and she opens up the basket and she looks in and she sees this baby boy and she recognizes this baby boy for who he is. He's one of the Hebrew boys. And she knows what her father has said. Her own dad has said, anybody who sees baby boy from these Hebrews, throw him into the Nile. She's right there at the Nile with this baby boy. What she should do is she should pick him up, cast him in, and watch him drown. But instead, her heart has pity on the boy. And she looks at this boy and picks him up and holds him. And then Miriam comes running over and looking and saying, I, I see this baby boy do you have. You want, you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse, nurse him for you? Yes, yes, I, I love that. And so she runs back and gets Moses' mother. Moses' mother comes back, goes there before Pharaoh's daughter, and then uh, asks this question, you know, do you want me to nurse him? Yes, yes, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, you nurse him, and then what I'll do is I'll pay you. So Moses' mother gets his, her own baby boy and gets paid to nurse him. And so then after the boy has grown, he's weaned, and he's, he's gotten to the right age, uh, Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses, adopts him into her own family. And so Moses actually lives there in the household of Pharaoh. So he's getting all the privilege, all the training, all the education, everything that comes with being part of the household of Pharaoh. Everything that he would ever need to be a leader, he gets there while he's in the household of Pharaoh because he was floating down a river and Pharaoh's daughter happened to see him there. And what we see in this is the hand of God working in every single detail that happens. Do you think it's just by chance that that basket floated down the river and didn't sink? Do you think it was just happened to be that Pharaoh's daughter went down at that exact moment, at that exact time where the basket was? Do you think it just happened that Pharaoh's daughter looked down and rather than throwing the baby in, looked on the baby with pity and love? Do you think it just happened that Miriam was there? Do you think it just happened that Pharaoh's daughter looked in love with the child and wanted Moses' own mother to nurse him? Do you think it happened by accident, by chance, that it just happened that Pharaoh's daughter looked on this Hebrew boy with love and decided to adopt him as her own? No! Standing behind this is the sovereign hand of God in every single thing that happens. Behind every movement of that baby as it floats down the river is the hand of God holding that basket. Behind every movement of Pharaoh's daughter as she comes down toward the water is the hand of God working. Behind the working of Pharaoh's daughter's heart as she looks on that baby with pity and with love is the hand of God shaping and working and molding her heart to look on pity with that, toward that child. Everything working in this is the hand of God as he works out his purpose for his people. Now, what I want to ask you, is God any less active and any less sovereign in your life? Absolutely not. God is the God who is sovereign over every single detail. And there is not a moment in your life that God has looked down and he said, I did not know that was going to happen. There is not a moment in your life in which God has not stood over that moment and said, I am sovereign over this. I still reign as king. 
See, we serve a God who is faithful to his purposes and promises. And we serve a God who stands sovereign over every moment, over every event, over everything that happens in your life. And if you are his, there is no doubt, no doubt that God is working his good, perfect purpose for you in every single moment of your life. Now this morning, I'm not going to pretend to know what's going on in your life. I'm not going to pretend to know the details of what's happening in your life, what's going on. You may be in the most joyous season of your life that you've ever experienced. You may be in in the darkest and going through pain that I I just can't understand. I, I would guess that most of us are kind of in the middle. We're not really on the mountain peaks or we're not really in the valleys right now. We're just kind of going through the normal days of life. But what I do know is that God stands sovereign over every moment of that. And what I know is that God, if you are his, is working out his good and perfect will, being faithful to his purpose, to his promise for you, his child, right now. And if you are his, what I want is for you and me to cling to the truth of God's faithfulness. That truth be so embedded upon our hearts and our souls that we stand absolutely unmovable, unshakable, that whether we're going through the best of the best or the average day or the worst of the worst, we stand knowing my God is faithful He stands in control, sovereign. He is working out his purpose for his people, for me. Right now, I trust in him. No questions. So that no matter what you face, you stand solid on that truth. Because when we believe that truth, when that truth is in our depths to our core, then we look at God and we say, no matter what may come, no matter what may happen, it is all for you and for your glory. Praise be to you. I trust in you. That is my prayer for us, brothers and sisters, that we will be that people who stand unmoving, unflinching, knowing that God is faithful to his promises and his purpose for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the truth of your word. God, I pray that you'll help us to grasp the truth that you are faithful. Lord, I know that there are many times when the the details of life block out that truth. When either the joys of this world and the pleasures of this world or the sorrows that come take our eyes off that truth. God, I pray that, that we will be so grounded and so fixated and standing firm on the truth of your faithfulness that we will stand unmoved, unshakable. May that truth set us free to set our eyes on you and say it's all for you, all for your glory. Praise be to you. Lord, we pray that you will work in us to make this truth 
part of the very fiber of who we are. God as a body, shape us in this truth. Glorify yourself as you work this truth out in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.